Okay, well, welcome everybody to the Think Education podcast, uh, as usual now, hosted by myself, Chris Hill, and my colleague, Judith Lamy. And today we are delighted to be joined by a very esteemed colleague, um, who Judith will introduce fully um, in a second. But just to say that we are, as we record this, operating in three distinct time zones uh, as we do so. So we are literally bringing this message from, well, mostly around the world. So, um, Judith, if I can um, give you the honours, please, of introducing our, our, well, distinguished, I think, is a legitimate label, right? Our distinguished guest? I, I know, I know. We, we genuinely have a distinguished guest with us today. But actually, I'm not going to do the hard work. I'm going to pass on to Michael Pelletier to introduce himself, the 30-plus years in the diplomatic service distinguished guest that we have with us. It was my pleasure to, to, to meet uh, Michael virtually for the first time um, last year when I first joined Swansea University because we have a strategic partnership with uh, Michael's uh, university and his team. But I don't want to steal his thunder and I want to pass over to you, Michael, first to maybe tell us why, what you're doing now and then, you know, knock people's socks off for what you've done in the past. Over to you, Michael. Well, Judith and Chris, thank you very much. It's really um, the honor. It's all mine, uh, particularly as someone who appreciates very much what you're both doing. And as somebody who's new to the field of international education, um, uh, really is very humbling. And I'm, I'm really pleased and honored uh, to be part of, of this conversation and part of this, this industry, if you will. Um, I joined the University of Houston here in Houston, Texas, a year and a month ago to open an Institute for Global Engagement, which is an aspired endowed initiative at the university to support and facilitate and expand and uh, strategize about all things international at the University of Houston. We're a, a huge university, a tier one research, public university serving particularly um, Hispanic uh, populations, Asian American Pacific Island populations, with a huge population of first-generation college goers. It's a growing and expanding and really aspirational university. And it's really a fantastic place, I think, to, to look at how we can make sure that global education touches everybody. Um, as somebody from New England, uh, I, you know, from a, from a family that was lucky enough to go to college before, um, uh, I always say, what we needed in the foreign service in the United States, which was my previous history, which I'll talk about, but what we need in the university and people studying those sorts of topics is people that don't look like me and aren't like me, don't have my background, but people that really represent the diversity of the United States. And frankly, you would be hard pressed to find a place in the United States more diverse and more truly representative of the United States than the University of Houston. So that's a thrill and a pleasure. And um, what I brought to the University of Houston, I guess, uh, is my 30 some odd years as a U.S. diplomat. Um, I joined the Foreign Service uh, straight out of graduate school, actually, and uh, 
worked most of my career in the field of public diplomacy, doing uh, cultural and educational diplomacy, as well as then spokesman and, and information work, press work, media work, um, including, I was telling Chris, a tour in Dubai where I got to travel all over the Arab world, got to fly on Emirates Air and got to enjoy Dubai's boom. Um, I uh, went on to serve in senior leadership positions in the State Department, uh, as our Deputy Ambassador, Deputy Chief of Mission to the Mission in India, uh, as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, uh, and then as our Dean for in one of our schools of Foreign Service Institute, where we train diplomats before they go out, and then ultimately as the U.S. Ambassador to Madagascar and the Republic of the Union of Comoros. Um, and from there, I retired from the Foreign Service and got this gig in Houston, and have been uh, looking at international education at the University of Houston for the past year. <laughs> I thought I might, thank you very much for that, Michael. And I, and I thought I, I might start by asking you a, a, a really difficult question in some ways, um, not necessarily anything to do with international higher education, but you've had, you know, a, a, a really, you know, a wonderful career and the experiences that you've it's enabled you to have in different parts of the world, meeting so many different types of people. And now you find yourself in the dizzy heights of the University of Houston in one of the, you know, really stellar academic institution, you know, not only just, of course, across the United States, but globally, you know, one of the world's best universities. In a sense, Taking the, the specifics maybe of the universities aside, wouldn't want to get you in trouble when it's only been a year and a bit in, in your job, but feel free to ask the question back. But what's it, what's it been like in your first year or so, you know, working in an academic institution? Well, I have, to, I mean, one, it's been a real... Uh, real thrill because frankly I'm surrounded by people who are much smarter than I am who are expert in their fields whether that's administrators who work in international ed or whether it's faculty colleagues who know far more about international business or international law or you know the history of Eastern Europe um, just what an amazing resource it is um, to be at a university with that sort of expertise um, that is a is a, is a huge thrill, frankly, um, to me. There are lots of smart people in the diplomatic service. I don't mean to disrespect my previous colleagues, but um, there's nothing quite like a university um, to really, you know, hit that level of real expertise and literally the people who wrote the book on whatever it is that you're interested in. Um, the other thing is, I will say, all through my foreign service career, I told everybody that to me, the solution, the, the cause and the solution to every problem for my mind, to my mind is communications. Um, when people miscommunicate or they think they've communicated and they haven't, that's when you end up with problems. And by communicating really uh, transparently, openly, intentionally, you, you can solve problems. And I find that's very true at the university level as well, um, that so often the problems just come down to people who didn't communicate uh, properly didn't understand the, the informational needs of the other side. Um, uh, and then once everybody actually sat down, frankly stopped emailing each other and got on the phone or got on a Zoom or a Teams meeting, they were able to solve the problems 
in the you know flash of an eye or snap of a finger. And so I think that's uh, the second thing I would say is how important communications is and how that's true, I think, probably no matter what you're doing, whether it's education, whether it's um, diplomacy. Um, and then the third thing I just mentioned, and I'd be really curious to hear what you both have to say about this, but one of the things that sort of surprised me, I guess, is that there, I was going to say how many models there are on how to do this, but I think actually the way to say it is that there are no real models on how to do this. Everybody does it a little bit differently. Um, and so I came into this and sort of asked a lot of peers and colleagues, how do you do international education at your university? And some of them do it this way, and some of them do it that way, and some of them include international recruitment, and some of them don't, and some of them are program-focused, and some of them are research-focused. And that's been really interesting because, in a way, it frees you up to define things and decide how to do things however you wish. Um, but it also means that there isn't a very clear-cut pattern. The State Department, it was pretty clear how you were going to get things done. Um, that doesn't seem to be the case at universities. That's a, that's a really interesting point, as you say, particularly com, com, comparing it with, with something like the State Department or, you know, if you, right. you're using it, I guess, and I guess that would apply in whatever country you're in, in areas of the foreign service, you know, you, you would have probably quite strict, you know, rules with you in terms of this is what it is, this is the model, this is what you say, this is what you do, this is what you can't do. Um, and I suppose, and that, that's actually a really interesting point because, Certainly, Chris and I have talked a number of times about different types of models of transnational education, you know, different types of models of, of international education. And as you say, there's probably actually not any one clearly defined one. It's probably just, there's probably a core at the centre, yeah. potentially, that a number might, might have. But I suppose there's lots of things that come into play, isn't there, when you are setting something up when you're doing something, be you, you know, in Houston, Texas, or in, in Swansea, and in, in, in Wales, or, or in, you know, in Dubai. And, and, I, and I wonder, therefore, and this links in a little bit to, to the latest book that, that Chris and I are working on, whether two things, whether identity and place have a lot of bearing on that, you know, uh, because of your identity, either as an institution or as an individual or as a set of individuals or, you know, or where you're located or how you're located, does that sort of, does that, you know, fundamentally affect, therefore, very much what you might be doing and how you might be doing it, just yeah. because of who you are, you know, that right. there might be some things that would work very well in your environment that wouldn't necessarily right. work in mine just because of who we are, how we're located, what, and I'm not talking particularly about systems here, I'm even talking about, you know, more more generally, you know, our, our identity as, as individuals. Right. No, and, and I think I think very much so, I mean, that's been one of our driving forces sort of here in Houston at the University of Houston. How do we take advantage of what Houston has to offer? How do we contribute to Houston as a good member of the community? Um, the other thing I would say is, is I tend to think of it more in terms of audience. I mean, who's my audience? Um, and, and, you know, part of, part of that is um, I'm more faculty and research oriented or more student oriented. Here at University of Houston, we're very student focused. Um, but also then sort of who are my students? Um, for me, my students are often uh, first gen, are often minority students, um, a very different student body 
than you might have, you know, at a Swansea or, or at uh, in UAE. I know, you know, UAE and in so many of the Gulf countries, the the sort of balance between the local audience, the local student body, the local the students who have come from the sub region, the students who come from outside the region, um, very very different balance than what we'd have here, for example. So I, I think a lot of it is driven, to my mind, by by what I think of as audience. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of, of looking at it because it, it, in some ways when, and I'll hand over to, to, to Chris in a moment, but when we started thinking about exploring identity in international higher education, I think for me, my, my, my sort of first question was actually, who am I? You know, who am mm. I? Where am I? Where am I located? And, and it's really interesting. And I've just written that down actually on my little pad. Actually, that, that the thought of, well, actually... Who am I working with? Who am I talking to? Who is who is my audience? And therefore, does that then actually even affect who I am? You know, do right. I do I shape myself to to be able to interact and to, to deliver with the audience? And it's a it's an interesting lens with which to look at it, isn't it? It's a slightly mm. slightly different one. I do have one other quick question, if I may, before I pass mm. over to Chris, because I was really interested in your point around. Um, around communication and as you say you know it's a small well i say it's a small word word it's not a small word actually it's quite a large word isn't it? it's quite a long word but you know in in a way as you say it's the root to to both failure and success isn't it you know mm-hmm. you can you can sometimes constantly communicate but unless it's the right type of communication you do it in the right sort of way and it's been received in the right way then you go mm-hmm. down to the roots of failure but if it is if you really nail it and you get it right, you, you're down the route to, to success. I suppose the point is, if you don't communicate at all, then you're definitely going to go down, down the route to failure. But I am interested just maybe, for those of us uh, people that are listening as well that might not know University of Houston, obviously, as well as you do, I mean, also, it's a, it's a big institution, isn't it? It is. is a big institution. But I'm also interested to... Maybe you could just remind us the size of the institution, how many students, roughly how many staff, and how do you deal with that communication when, you know, there is a tendency for us to be flicking emails all the time, isn't there? And and actually that isn't necessarily, sometimes it compounded communication challenge that you might not realise you've got. So what's the size and scale of of Houston? So University of Houston, uh, let me get a little bit into the weeds, I guess. So University of Houston is both a system and a university. So the University of Houston system has four universities, University of Houston, and then University of Houston downtown, University of Houston Victoria, University of Houston Clear Lake. I'm at University of Houston Maine campus, and I don't work for the system, I work for UH Maine. Uh, We don't have our final numbers for this incoming semester, but a year ago, fall... Uh, we had 47,000 students. We have about 3,500 uh, faculty, more or less. Um, as you both know, counting faculty is probably a, more than a full-time department's job. <laughs> Who counts as what? Um, uh, but and we have, um, I think, I want to say 13 colleges and then a number of institutes and, and other things. We really do most everything from public health to law to liberal arts and social sciences. Uh, we have um, uh, hospitality leadership, uh, communications. Uh, we, we really do a, a little bit of everything. It's, it's a fascinating 
uh, fascinating place. And one of the challenges in a place like that um, is the communications because it's just so big. And particularly, as I said earlier, we try to be student-centric. Well, recognize that students are getting messages and communications from student life, from their college, from their faculty, from their major, from their minor, from their extracurricular and co-curricular activities. You don't want to overwhelm them, but you don't want them to not get what they need to get in order to understand what's available. And so figuring out how to communicate when there are so many different types of communication going on is, is a real challenge. And of course, that adds the generational gap, um, you know, Twitter and Facebook aren't what they necessarily used to be, um, have a different audience than Instagram um, and uh, WhatsApp and other apps. And so it's very interesting to kind of keep up with how you're going to communicate both with students and with faculty. And, and the last thing I'd just say really quickly is I think the real work of a diplomat and the real work of an ambassador is to create networks, um, to create uh, those sorts of communications and those sort of conversations. And so I look at my job at the University of Houston as very much a continuation of that. Like if I just basically get everybody talking together, you know, we have an, a foreign diplomat from Washington coming into Houston. Rather than just work with one college on doing a speech to one group of students, I have that overarching look of th at things and I can say let's involve not just the School of Public Policy but the School of History and the Honors College and the school, you know, the department of that language where that master comes from and that sort of gets those, those synergies built up, I guess, in a way that I hope is helpful. That's really the thanks very thanks very much, um, Michael. Yes, I mean we're we're going to go global in a moment, aren't we? But it yeah. really does make me reflect on the fact that even just communicating across your, as you say, your system of the, the universities, uh, let alone um, uh, doing anything else, must be. Uh, I, I say a challenge. I don't mean that in a negative way, but just yes. just a fascinating route through which you one one needs needs to navigate but i'm going to pass over to chris now because i'm sure chris has got a, a, a few pointers and questions oh thank you Judith. i do um and i mean fascinating um insights uh it's interesting because that the last point i was just thinking about that it's often easier not just because of the the pandemic connection system but it's often easier for us to connect with academics in different universities or different countries than it is with the person next door on the corridor. I mean, academics are a very yeah. siloed population. We, you know, I mean, we're often detached from the practical world in the sense of application um, as opposed to theoretical. But um, it, yeah, I, I agree with you, this sort of this communication. I mean, I've worked on branch campuses where, you know, that, that level of communication is a very tricky issue. You know, the, that identity between, and, and again, you use the word you know, I work on the main campus and and I have colleagues um, when I used to work in a, a, a branch campus in Southeast Asia, they're like, oh, no, no, we work on the home campus. You're on the the, yeah. the other one. And then and then um, another campus appeared and they're like, oh, no, you're not even the other one. You're the other other one. And, you know, it became this sort of interesting communication quandary, um, which was fed in by identity um, and, you know, trying to maintain that. No, no, we are part of a of a whole and but this is an issue that Judith and I come back to time and time again which is that core of identity which is who who are you as a university uh, for a start we've, we've you know we've talked quite a lot about 
what is a university? What's the purpose of a university? Who does it serve? You know, how does it serve? You know, where's it going? Um, and, you know, is the, is the location the factor that creates its identity? Or, or particularly within our world of international education, a lot of its value is driven or derived from its home. You know, it is linked to a, an idea or a brand or a reputation or a, a set of principles that the other country now wants. But you can't be the same in the other country because you're, you know, so you're balancing that holding on to a sense of, of values or ethics or principles while working in a country that quite often doesn't share those ethics or values or principles, but wants your identity. And, and we think continually about what that means for students. You know, how does the student identify themselves? Are they a member of that branch campus? Are they a member of that foreign university? Are they just, you know, within this country and just taught by foreigners? You know, what does that, what does that really mean? And that's something we come back to. And, and it really struck me when you were saying how many of your students are first generation university students, because that in itself is a, is a huge identity marker, right? That you're dealing with a population who, to all intents and purposes, have no frame of reference lived or shared or historical about what a university means. But that also means they're not constrained. They, they are, in essence, free from what, you know, we who've never left a university believe it should be. Um, and so I was just wondering what, what, that's, um, what that sense of identity is like with, with, uh, with obviously a whole, as you say, a new generation of opportunity um, who who are essentially beginning a new narrative? Um, I was just curious what what that meant for the identity within within the university structure. Well, and isn't it interesting also to think now post COVID with these new technologies, with uh, collaborative online and learning, and and even things like this technology, which brings us together from Houston to Dubai to the UK. Um, what is the identity that you bring? Is, is, is University of Houston, when we're teaching an online course in China, where the students are all in China, what does being in Houston have to do with it? Yeah. And I like, Chris, your talk about you know, the ethics and the values and, and, and what it is that we believe we're getting out of higher ed. But I think it really does force us, whether it's with first-gen students or whether it's with all of us being first-gen post-COVID, mm. um, what, what is it that's really essential um, and, and definitional about what it is we're doing? And I think that's something that we're, we're thinking a lot about um, in terms of, you know, as, as we expand and as we do more internationally, well, what is the, the real key? I mean, there's obviously, we're a Texas State University, there's Texas core curriculum that you need to learn no matter where you study. So, I, I mean, I, I just think that that's, that's really um, sort of a, a big question that all of us are going to have to deal with um, in this brave new world um, of, of universities. Sorry, slight detour. But. No, no, not at all. Um, I, I had a, a follow-up point, but Judith, you wanted to chip in here? No, just a, just a, a quickie, really, because it was just when you were talking there, Michael, and just reflecting on the types of students you've you've had and 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 have got. And I was just wondering, um, you know, about the mobility of those students. You know, pre-COVID, were they? I guess because often, if you're, you're first gen, you know, you might, you might not necessarily even just going to university itself is is mobility enough, isn't it? You know, I mean, I, I'm speaking from personal experience as well. You know, the, the fact that I've 
left home and went to university was was massive. The fact that then somebody mm-hmm. might have wanted me to go somewhere else, I probably would have yeah. thought at the time was a bit of a step too far. But I'd just be interested to know um, whether, you know, pre, pre-COVID, did you have a lot of your students, let's say, going on mobility programs? And mm-hmm. do you think that that will, that will change in the shape of that post-COVID as well? No, I, I, we did. It actually, it, it reminds me of something I wanted to say vis-a-vis what, what Chris was raising as well. No, I, we did before COVID, um, and we continue now post-COVID, um, really to have, I mean, all, of course, it's it's a huge range of response, but I think it's fair to say there are a lot of students, be they you know, first-gen or not, um, who want that part of the experience, that see international experience, international learning um, um, opportunities as part of what they think of as the university experience. And so they really want that. And we have a lot of support um, through scholarships, through um, workshops. Uh, we work with a variety of programs to make it affordable for them and also to give them tools to discuss with their families why this is an important part. Um, there are also a lot of students who just say, you know, no, I can't, either because they don't think it's part of of their I know they don't see themselves in that picture of university students who can do international learning. And we try to make sure that they see themselves in that picture. Sometimes they just don't. Sometimes they just can't. They're supporting their families. Uh, they're you know paying for their own education. And it's, it's a step too far, in which case we'll try to create local opportunities. Houston being such an international city, find a way to do global local to avoid that horrible neologism Global, um, but uh, we we try to do global local, but but I think a lot of them do see it as part of what they expect, and and that one of the things I was thinking of when during Chris when Chris was speaking, I was walking across campus the other day, and we have a carol on at the university, and it was noon, and I was walking, and the bells of the carol on were gonging, and to my mind that was like such a university thing. I went to Georgetown undergraduate, we had the churches, and 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 you'd hear the bells. Um, you know, either on the hour or when it was time to go to mass and to hear the bells like that, to me, that rang, pardon the pun, as something really university-like. And I thought, wow, I know I'm at a university because I'm hearing that. And so I think there's a lot in the in, in one's imagination that is linked to I'm having a university experience. Now, for me, it's something as simple as hearing the, the chimes gong at noon um, but for a lot of students, I think it's also that exposure to the world, whether that's through learning abroad or whether that's through meeting international visitors, et cetera. I think uh, for our students, that's a, that's an important part of the, that identity. It's, Sorry, Chris. No, 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 no. I mean, it was, it's completely linked to, to what I was, uh, was and now will ask, which was a point, Michael, you made. Um, at the beginning of our talk about, you know, ensuring that global education touches everybody. And uh, obviously, as a, as a career diplomat, the, I mean, as a Western career diplomat, even, even more so, perhaps, you know, we, we have this tension sometimes and, and problematic, you know, uh, deconstruction of, of what it means to be global. And, and actually, that's often driven by, a, a, you know, a Judeo-Christian, Anglo, Western identity sense, and, and within higher education, yeah. even you know, often reinforced, where global education actually means education in English, and and it means critical skills aligned with you know a sort of a, a Western ideology, and it, and it often means you know a set of values that are 
very established and developed in one part of the world, but perhaps, you know, completely anathema in, in, in others. And, and I think that what you're saying about that the more we can encourage where students can travel, fantastic, but where they can't, because we know that the percentage of international students is, is minuscule compared to the global population. But I was just wondering, and I like the example that you gave about, you know, when a speaker comes and how do we integrate and create these networks within the different departments? Um, and it's something that, you know, a lot of universities need to work better at. You know, how, how do we, in, you know, increase exposure to the other, you know, and therefore increase understanding uh, and therefore, you know, um, rather without the risk of the sort of, you know, assimilation and, and you know, sameness. Um, you know, we're all three of us in this conversation, we've all worked and traveled in multiple countries and, and learned from those experience and been changed because of them. Um, and I think it's, a, it's often a challenge where coming back to this issue of identity, international education, is it about reproducing the, the values at home abroad? Well, is that, does that make sense? You know, or is it about you know, ensuring the quality of the educational experience in a different context abroad? And then how do you bring that learning back to the home? Because that's, that's often a very, a very tricky transition. Um, and, and, and many American universities, the, the, many international students go to America, but America doesn't export education in the same way that, say, Britain or Australia does with its, its branch campuses. And so I was curious to, to have your take on, on, on how we can, as, a, as an industry, as a sector, you know, think about internationalizing at home. Um, you know, because as you said, if you've got if you've got students who for whom say like, I don't want the second step or the third step or the fourth step, like I'm not interested in going abroad. This is already scary. Like this is what I have just done is groundbreaking. You know, I've changed the entire pathway of my family, and yet you know we in university saying, well, yeah, but you could go to another country. You could go to this, and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa slow. You know, as you say, slow, slow, slow down a, a little bit. Slow your roll. Yeah, and and we have this problem in British universities. British students are historically terrible at traveling um um yeah so yeah no i was just i was i was very struck by some of the points that you were making earlier and this sort of this global nature of what we're trying to to do for people for whom well, they may never experience that globally right and i think i don't know when, when you were speaking one, one of the things that came to me is i think one of the areas that i hope to work on and i suspect a lot of us could work on is better supporting and 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 sharing uh, the experiences of those students who have been abroad and come back. Yeah. You know, so our students from UH who spend a semester abroad or a summer abroad or even a short-term program abroad, when they come back, helping them to integrate that international experience into their educational experience at UH, but also helping them then to channel and to use that energy they have to pay back. A mm. lot of them come back and say, people were so nice. We met all these wonderful students. I want to be supportive of international students who are coming to Houston. How do we, how do we, how do we use mm. their experience? How do we let them use their experience and their desire to, to connect rather than just say, great, you had a learning abroad experience. That's wonderful. Check mm. that box. Move on. Yeah. No. How do we help them integrate it? both into their own education, but also into our greater community. Um, because I think, to my mind, ultimately what I think really matters about international education, and this may not be terribly kosher, 
But it's, it's that you learn that there are many, many different ways to, to look at a problem, to understand a problem, to solve a problem. And I think of that even just learning a foreign language. The example I always I give is um, different languages count differently. Um, hmm. I lived in Senegal, and in Wolof, you count by fives. Um, one, two, three, four, five. Five and one, five and two, five and three, five and four. Needless to say, my math skills are very quickly surpassed. <laughs> Senegalese have no problem counting in Wolof like that. Um, Malagasy, when I was in Madagascar, the prepositions work differently. They're about motion versus being at rest. They're about being internal versus being external. There are many ways to perceive reality and to, to try to identify challenges and problems and then to come up with solutions. And so whether that's just by learning a foreign language, whether it's by being exposed to an international community here at home, or whether it's ultimately, hopefully, you know, learn, doing a learning abroad experience, I think you learn that, you learn a certain humility that comes from learning that. And then when you're back at your home university, you're back home, how do you share that? How do you share that with your colleagues? How do you add it to your own education and your own outlook? And how do you use it to help integrate and to help welcome and help facilitate the experience of foreign students who are at your home institution? To me, that's the real key, and it's it's a little, I don't know, it's a little um, in the air. It's a little hard to define, but I think that's really ultimately the bottom line goal. I think that's um, that's a really, and probably as an applied linguist, I would say this, but that's a really interesting point you make in terms of the, in terms of the language, you know, the language and the country and the the culture, and in one way. You know, when you when you live and work overseas, um, you don't, of course, have to learn the language. You and sometimes people don't. But personally, I, I, I think it's always good to at least try and learn something yeah. for your for yourself to feel at yeah. ease, if nothing else. But as you say, you know, you really can learn such a lot about a country and about an identity of a country through the language and through through how it's structured, how it develops, how they count, how they, you know, all of those sorts of things. And I suppose that is something we can actually do at home with people. Right. So there's, a, there's an urgency and a need for it when you, I mean, I lived in, in Japan in the 1980s and it wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of English around there, there then. And, you know, it was for my own benefit as well as to understand more about the place that I was living in that I started to learn the language. And I started to understand more about why people were doing things in certain ways and also reflect more on myself because I was learning the language, you know. I guess from a, certainly from a UK point of view, the studying of languages in schools has been something that has been on a decline for quite a long time, which, which I've always thought is very sad anyway, because again, it isn't just about whether you can go and you know, order a sandwich somewhere or go and buy stamps, which is that I think people still are learning how to go and buy stamps, even though most people would never have any stamp. Probably, it's probably only us in the, on this call and a handful of other people that we know who use stamps. And yet probably most of us can say it in most languages that we've, we've learned and they probably can say it now. But, you know, that I think just is a really, has been a really interesting point to make um michael i know that we're going to have to start to, to to wrap this up in the not too far distant future but there is there is one uh, certainly for me one final question and i'm sure chris might have a, a final question as well 
but I'm really interested to learn a little bit about the thoughts around um, your university's footprint globally. I mean, Chris said a little while ago that places like Australia and the UK are doing much more internationally. They're going out there, they've got branch campuses and things like that. And I think I, I noted that you raised an eyebrow slightly in terms of maybe the states not doing that so much. Um, I suppose what I certainly think when I think of with Houston is you've got a massive global reputation. And I suppose there are a lot of places that might therefore then think, I don't actually need to go global for that bit because I already am global. I'm global in my research. I'm global in my mindset and attitude. I'm global in what I'm doing. But a footprint somewhere else is also one aspect of, of global, isn't it? I just like to, you know, like to hear your thoughts a little bit on that. And is is that something that Houston does? Uh, is it something it might do? I mean, you've set up the new Institute for Global Engagement. Is that also so, to do with footprints? Um, I must say, right now, I think, um, and for the near-term future, our focus has to be on Houston and on the University of Houston and our students who are here. Um, we are still very much a growing university and one that, that is uh, changing, becoming much more a, a more sort of quote-unquote traditional residential university, um, with more and more students living on campus. And I think it's our responsibility really, and, and I think we all agree, um, to really invest in that. Um, I also think that there are ways that are a lot more cost-effective and a lot more efficient um, than going and looking at setting up a, a campus overseas right now. Um, you know, I, how do we support students and, and that are going overseas? Do, do we need a building to do that? Do we need an institution or do we need strong partnerships? And how wonderful to actually reinforce our partners and strengthen them um, for the benefit of all of their students as well as uh, any partnerships that we have. Similarly, on the research front, you know, our faculty are working with universities and with colleagues all around the world. Does that mean we need an institution in different parts of the world or can we do that by really strengthening those partnerships, building up that local capacity as well? Honest, obviously, the way I'm presenting that, I have a bias towards strengthening our partners. I think that's, that's our, our real goal. But yeah, I, I, I would raise an eyebrow um, at the idea that American universities don't. I think a number of universities have set up overseas. I know <laughs> I was teasing my colleagues from Rice University here in Houston recently because they set up a, a center in Paris. And overnight, so many of my colleagues from UH said, ooh, are we going to Paris too? And I said, well, no, you couldn't go talk to your friends across town at Rice um, because that's their model and that's, that's the way they want to grow. I think a lot of universities are doing that very successfully. Um, it's not necessarily what we're focused on. I think a lot of universities, even before COVID and certainly post-COVID, are finding that international center model really challenging for a lot of reasons. Um, and I, I just think let's look at the new technologies, let's look at the new opportunities and see if there are, are easier, better, more flexible ways to do that. That's great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. And, and yeah, no, no, I mean, and it's funny, this was going to be, um, was going to be my question too. Um, and this ties in exactly with um, conversations that Judith and I have had and, and indeed was in the, in the first book about sort of rethinking what it is to be a university. Do, do you actually need a, a physical building? You know, as you, you said already today, with the, the, the advancement of technology, do students need to be sat 
you know, we've got Australian universities where students don't come back at all. Like, you know, it's just, they're, they're completely online. You know, we've, the model shifted, you know, we're holding on to a traditional view of, oh, well, you're not learning unless you're sitting in a classroom. And we know that that doesn't guarantee learning by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and I mean, no. Judith wrote a chapter in the first book looking at these, you know, consortia and, and partnerships and, and how we leverage and how we build capacity while reducing risk, therefore also reducing carbon footprint and, you know, increasing sustainability. The only, the only real threat is what we think we should be or what we were. If we let go of that, then, you know, the, the freedom to, to develop new models are, I mean, and I've worked on a branch campus, they, they are hugely challenging, you know, and they have huge problems with internal identity and they're hugely costly and they're hugely risky and they're fantastic, but they're difficult. And so, you know, then by no means the number one choice um, for, for almost anybody these days, right? So um, it's very, very encouraging to hear um, this sort of communication network, building partnership, building local capacity and learning from it. It's, I think, I think we're all three of us in agreement. This is a, this is a, the way international education is, but definitely should be moving um, and moving a lot faster than it, than it possibly is. So um, no, very, very much appreciate your, your insights and perspective on this. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, very, very interesting. And by no means meant to, insult my american cousins in in terms of their uh, their expansion uh globally uh, however that may whatever form that may take uh, yes no indeed there's it's, nothing wrong with being a little bit provocative well no this is true this is true um um i had a, a debate my, with my six-year-old daughter this morning who was saying um do you know how americans spell neighborhood and i was like yeah no i know and she's like yeah there's no you i was like no i i know she's like because that's how you spell it it's like in America, and she's like, yes, and in England, I was like, no, no, and then she's, and then you know, my my American wife chimes in and says, okay, we're we're done with this conversation because you're not going to let go, and Daddy's not going to let go, so it's just, it's just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now this was all going so nicely until you brought up spelling. <laughs> Quite right. You know, Frankly, I think. This I suspect all of us could agree that English, whichever dialect you're speaking, does not spell easily. Correctly. And th <laughs> thankfully, international higher education is absolutely fine for all of us. There's no debate on how there we spell go. it. So how we define it, fine. But we can all spell it in the same way. Yes. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah, wonderful. Well, thank, no, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for, for that. That's been, been, uh, been fantastic. And hopefully we haven't taken up... Uh, too much of your time. Um, the downside for, for, for people like Judith and myself who are hosting this, that is the, the huge positive of this technology allows us to reach people like you without too much inconvenience to you, we hope. The downside is you can just hang up. You know, if we were in the same room together, it would be a lot harder for you to get up and leave and we could just keep asking you questions. But technology allows people to just be like, oh, I'm sorry. And then I can't, I can't hear you. And then, and then the call ends. So... <laughs> No, we, we thank you very much indeed for, for your time. And we could have talked to you for, for you know, many, many more hours, but uh, um, very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Really great. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it.